Welcome to a Yin Yoga podcast. I'm your host, Nick Denu, certified yoga therapist, mentor of yoga teachers, Yin Yoga teacher trainer, and total Yin Yoga geek. If you have a crush on Yin Yoga and are ready to dive deep, then you're in the right place. Here, myself and my guests will discuss all things Yin Yoga, including anatomy, philosophy, traditional Chinese medicine, meditation, Taoism, teaching tips, and so much more. You can expect these conversations to be long format, informal, lo-fi, and delightfully imperfect. So whether you are a yoga teacher or a yin yoga student, I welcome you to the inside. Yinnies, welcome back to a yin yoga podcast. If you are new here, welcome and welcome back to returning listeners. If we haven't met before, my name is Nick Denu and I'm your host. I'm a certified yoga therapist, mentor of yoga teachers, yin yoga teacher trainer, and a total yin yoga geek. And I also offer public yoga classes as well. A couple of things to note here. These are adult conversations, and so they might include difficult subject matter, but you can expect some adult language. So if you have small people around, take a moment to grab your headphones now. One more thing to mention is you may or may not know, dear listener, that you can also watch these on video if you prefer video as a format to audio. I upload the completely unedited versions to my YouTube channel, and there will be a link below wherever you're listening to this to access those if you would like to. Okay, so now that we've got all of that business out of the way, today's topic is something I've been meaning to talk about for a while, and it's been on the list of, in my phone, of podcast episode ideas, but it kind of got sparked recently, so I thought, now is the time. So I'm in a lot of yin groups on Facebook. In fact, the only reason I stay on Facebook is for the groups. So yin groups and also other teacher groups as well. So I'm on I'm on a few groups in Facebook. And recently there was somebody who posted a question and that sort of sparked today's episode. The question was when I'm doing shoelace pose I can't get my head above my knee. What am I doing wrong? Or are there any tips to help me with this? So that was the kind of match getting lit for this episode. If you are newer to yin circles, as a member of the public, maybe you're not a teacher, then you may not know Or even if you are a teacher who's newer to the practice of yin, but don't have any yin training at this point, you may not know that we don't follow those kinds of rules in yin. If you're not familiar with the work of Paul Grilly, my teacher, he has what was a DVD and is now an online streaming presentation called Anatomy 
for yoga. And one of the geniuses of Paul and one of the biggest contributions he's made to the yogaverse is understanding that skeletal variations are a very real thing. Meaning, if you and I were to stand next to each other, even if we were exactly the same height and weight, kind of general body proportions, like our arms were similar length, et cetera, et cetera, we do not look the same on the inside. So inside of our body, our bones are not the same from one person to the next. And Paul came across this aha and then started sharing it in workshops and trainings. And then it became the rather famous now anatomy for yoga presentation. And if you are a teacher, especially, but even the public could definitely watch this, but especially if you're a teacher, if you have not watched that anatomy for yoga presentation, whether you teach yin or not, because it's not yin specific, it's yoga specific. I cannot recommend that you do that enough. It will change the way that you look at your body and everybody else's body for the rest of your life. And it will allow you to be truly of service to your students in a much deeper way. If you want to know more about that, there will be a link to it in the show notes so that you can hop online and snag that presentation. Let's start with a little story, shall we? We all love stories. So when I was a fairly new teacher, I think I'd been teaching probably about two-ish years, somewhere in that range, I realized that in my first teacher training, although it was a fairly good program, I didn't feel like I had enough anatomy knowledge, nor did I feel like I had enough sequencing knowledge, but that's a podcast episode for another time. And so those were kind of the two areas once I graduated my first teacher training that I decided I was going to need to do some more continuing education in some self-study in order to really kind of feel like I had an understanding of these things. So one day while in a bookstore, back when everybody went to bookstores, I still do, but you know, most people don't anymore. I was in the yoga section and there was this DVD called anatomy for yoga. I didn't know anything about the teacher. I didn't know anything about what the subject matter was specifically, but I did know that I felt like in my first teacher training, the anatomy section was way too short and I really didn't jive with the teacher. And so it's like, yes, I'm going to get this. So I bought that. It was a DVD. Again, you don't have to watch it old school like that. Now it's streaming online. So I bought the DVD and took it home and started watching it. And it's fairly lengthy. So it's the kind of thing you can spread out unless you are totally nerdy like me and want to spend a whole Saturday night doing it, which is what I did, but you can spread it out. It's in chapters. And so I watched it and my mind was completely blown because watching that information and learning about all of our different bone structures, not to mention body proportions and all the other things was something that was news to me. So I was first trained in a style of yoga that was very sort of one size fits all, where there was these blanketed alignment cues, I'm doing air quotes here, alignment cues that were tossed out and they were tossed out to everybody in the group, regardless of what our particular body or shape or body proportions were. So there was this idea in my first teacher training program, which was an Iyengar based program, 
it wasn't an Iyengar certification program, but all the teachers that taught in that program were Iyengar teachers other than one. So it was very Iyengar influenced, you could say. And it definitely left me with the feeling of there is a right way and a wrong way to do a yoga pose. And that these five little points are the, the air quotes, cues that we use to guide somebody in and out of this shape. So there were cues that we learned that we were to say to people to get them in and out of their poses. There was the way the pose should look like. And if you couldn't do that pose in the way that it was taught, then you were just given props so that you could try your best to look like the version that other people were doing. So it wasn't like, oh, okay, your leg doesn't work that way or your leg doesn't move that way. So let's just, you know, do what feels right for you. That was not how I was trained. I was trained with, this is the air quotes right way to do this pose. And so this is the way you do it. And if you can't do it, you just use props until you can get comfortable enough and look like you're in some semblance of a similar shape, but with a bunch of props. So this was how I was trained. And even in my first training, I was starting to get these inklings that this wasn't right. That there were things in my body that didn't fit with what they were saying. And there was no flexibility on individualism, on each person being different. So for example, in extended side angle pose, based on my bone structure, if I bring my hand to the floor, I get a sharp pinching in my hip socket. To be clear, it's not a stretch sensation. There's no stretch sensation at all. It's like a pinch, like someone's taken a handful of my flesh and just squished it really hard. If I then go, oh, okay, that's too far. And I bring my elbow up onto my knee, then I'm just kind of hanging out there. Like I'm really not getting anything from that shape. If I do in between and I put my hand on a block, then I can come lower and I can do that shape without the sharp pinching. And so as a new teacher, so I was discovering this in my teacher training, I went to my teachers and said, why is this? Why is it when I bring my hand to the floor, which I, I technically have the flexibility to do, am I getting this pinching in my hip socket? And I didn't get a good answer. I got answers like, your hips are tight, which is totally baloney because the only area of my body that has been naturally flexible, there's only a couple of them. Every other little bit of flexibility that I have is, has been earned with years of practice, but I've always been fairly open in my hips and my inner thigh at the time as well, just in comparison to the average bear, not circus Olay amounts, but you know, compared to the average person. So I knew that it wasn't tight hips. That was the answer. And yet I wasn't getting any answers. So, you know, I just kept putting my hand on a block because I couldn't get any answers. And I certainly didn't want to feel that sharp pinching pain. So I blocked. Another example from my time in my own teacher training is that I am naturally what's called an internal rotator in my hip sockets. And I'll explain what that is before we go further, just in case you're new to this kind of information. So depending on where your hip socket is on your body, some people's orientates a little more to the front, 
some people's orientates a little more to the side. Some people's orientates even further to the side, almost kind of to the back. So that's your hip socket, right? Where the top of your leg bone plugs into your hip socket. So that's one thing that can be different from person to person. The other thing that can be different is the head of your leg bone or your femur, the size of the head of that bone can be totally different from person to person. Now, I realize that for some of you, this might be brand new information because in our teacher trainings, we're often given an anatomy book with drawings or we have that plastic skeleton thing at the front of the room. And so we think that everybody looks like that on the inside. But if we can acknowledge that you might have a group of people standing near each other and they have different eye colors and heights and weights and body proportions and skin tones, et cetera, et cetera, then why is it that we think on the inside we all look the same? We don't. So this is what I mean by skeletal variations. And this is what Paul goes through at length in that presentation. Now I'm going to talk about it just based on my own personal experiences in shapes to illustrate what I've ahas I've had with this because of my own bone structure. But these are by no means all of the examples. These are just the ones that have personally affected me. Okay, so back to the hip joint. My hip joint, because I'm naturally genetically more internally rotated, I actually have a really good amount of external rotation as well, depending on the position of my pelvis. So depending on whether my pelvis is flat or tucked or tilted or upright or laying down will noticeably change how much range of motion I have in my hip before my leg bone eventually hits my hip socket in a way where it's like bone on bone and it can't move. So it's complex, right? It's a complex joint. So I'm naturally fairly genetically rot internally rotated, meaning when I just sit on the floor, I can easily stretch my legs out straight and have my legs kind of fall in towards each other. So if you were imagining this, the obvious way to see it is your feet might turn in, but it's actually not coming from the feet or the ankles or the lower leg. It's coming from the hips. So I'm genetically internally rotated. I have a good amount of genetic internal rotation. I also have external rotation, but we'll leave that to the side for now. And so for me to do a pose like what's in Hatha called Supdavarasan, reclined hero, or in Yin, we call it saddle pose. So for me to come into that pose and bring my bum to the ground, my knees look like they're turning in towards each other, but it's actually not my knees that are turning. It's my whole thigh bones that turn in. So my knees look like they're kind of turning in, but it's actually my whole leg, upper leg bone in the hip socket that turns in. And in Iyengar circles, this is moment for freaking out. So I would do that. I'd been sitting like that since I was a small child, quite comfortably. I did have a babysitter when I was little, also freak out about me sitting down on the floor between my feet, saying that I was going to ruin my knees, which is ridiculous. So in my Iyengar classes, when I would do that and I would sit between my feet, because that's what I would need to do to feel a stretch in my thigh muscles, in my quadriceps, is I would need to come down. And usually we would be doing this pose as a prep for backbends, right? We would be opening the front line of our body, stretching out our quads as a way to prepare for deeper, stronger backbends. 
And so everybody else would be, you know, doing their reclined hero or AKA saddle. And most of their knees would point straight, but mine would turn in. And then teachers would come up and freak out about that and say all kinds of things like you're going to wreck your knees and blah, blah, blah. And so they would put a bunch of support under my bum so that I couldn't come down as low until my knees pointed straight. And then they would strap my legs together so they would stay that way. And then they would ask me to lie down in reclined hero. So the problem with that is many fold. The first one is now everyone else in the group is feeling sensations of stretch in their thighs, their quadriceps as a way to prepare for the backbending that's about to happen. But I'm not getting that stretch because you've got me up on all of these blocks and things and you've got my legs stuck together with a strap. So I'm just hanging out there. Like I'm just laying back feeling nothing not stretching my quadriceps because you've taken away what my bone structure naturally allows my body to do. So this became an issue. So I would always think, well, that doesn't make sense. Now everybody else is getting this big quad stretch and I'm getting nothing. And I'm going to also have to do wheel pose in a few moments without opening up my quads. Like, I don't understand this. So there was the hip thing in extended side angle with the pinching there was the not allowing me to internally rotate in my, in my thighs, which is in my hips, which is totally natural for my body. And then the final one was I have a very limited range of motion in my shoulders. So a pose like shoulder stand, for example, some people can effortlessly come into shoulder stand and they love that pose and it works so well for their body and it feels relaxing, et cetera, et cetera. In my body, that is not the case. If I interlace my hands behind my back, and then I try to bring my hands away from my sacrum, away from my lower back, I get maybe an inch, inch and a half before I just get stuck. So to be really clear, it's not muscular tightness that's restricting me. I don't feel any stretch. I just literally get stuck. Like I can't pull my hands any further away and even when teachers would try to put their hands under my arms and bring my hands away, nope, they just don't go. And that's because I'm hitting my bones. So in my shoulder joints, I have a fairly small acetabulum and a fairly, I guess, large in comparison to the acetabulum bone in my upper arm. And so it doesn't take long when you're in that range of motion of pulling your hands behind your back before I'm hitting my bones, which means we're done. That's all I can do. Now, if I was able to bring my hands wider using a strap, then I'm able to bring my hands much further away because I'm able to get around that point of bony compression in my shoulder. So how did this come up in my poses? Well, when you're upside down in shoulder stand and most people are using their arms, you know, maybe hands interlaced or maybe hands sort of on their back as a way to roll their shoulder blades together and, you know, use their arms to help lift them up off of the neck so that they're not getting all of the weight of that pose on their neck. I'm not able to do that because I can't bring my arms back away enough to get the weight off of my neck. So when I do a classic shoulder stand or plow or um, snail in yin, 
I only feel a bunch of weight and pressure on this on C7 on my neck, which is hello uncomfortable. My face starts to turn red. It feels like torture. And I remember having teachers come up to me in my training and saying to me, like, can you get your, your arms more underneath you and, you know, roll them back and lift up off of your neck? And the answer was always, no, I can't. I'm literally stuck here. Now, of course, in the Iyengar tradition, they have props for everything. And so they would get me in a very prop version of a shoulder stand using a bolster under my shoulders and a chair for my legs and all of that. But at that point, it's taken me like half of the time that everyone has in that shape to just get into a version that I could work with. There wasn't an understanding of the fact that I was probably hitting my bones. They assumed I just wasn't air quotes flexible enough in order to do that pose. So I just needed to wait until my shoulders opened up before I could do it. But they never once asked me, are you feeling a stretch in your shoulders? So those are just three examples in my own body of how in my first teacher training, there were some things where I was like, hmm, this doesn't make sense to me. Why isn't this working? Or why, when you give that direction, does it feel completely the opposite in my body from what you're saying it should? Because I'm an internal rotator, for example. So this is how I graduate. I graduate this program. I am using all of the same automatic robotic alignment cues that I was taught. So I'm using all of the step-by-step -step alignment cues. I'm using all of the so-called air quotes, for those of you who can't see me, rules of alignment in order to air quotes, keep people safe. And I start teaching this way. So I'm a young teacher. I'm out. I'm saying all of the silly things that were taught, like, you know, have your knee directly above your ankle in a lunge, all of the things that have now been completely debunked for those of us that have been staying up on these things. And I come out and I'm teaching and I walk into the bookstore and there is the anatomy for yoga DVD. I buy the DVD. I go home, put it on my computer on a Saturday night, and start watching it because that's how I roll on Saturday nights. And my mind is blown because there's a huge amount of people in that presentation that have very different bone structures and body proportions. And Paul so skillfully demonstrates ranges of motion from really restricted bone structures to really very like bendy bone structures, almost not bendy. That's not the right word, but large ranges of motion to really restrictive ranges of motion. And then a few people in between. And he also really demonstrates body proportions, how that affects what we're doing. And so watching this presentation, my mind was blown as far as my own body. I was having some aha moments. I was like, oh, I'm an internal rotator. I didn't even know that was a thing. Okay, cool. Oh, that's why I can't do this shape. Or, oh, it's fine if my knees turn in when I sit like this. I'm not damaging anything because the movement's not coming from my knees. It's coming from up in my hip socket. Oh, it's having all of these huge aha moments. And then as we do as teachers, you go back out into the world and you start teaching your students and you start looking at their bodies and going, wait a minute, maybe the reason so-and-so isn't doing what I'm saying 
as far as these alignment cues go, isn't because they're not listening. It's because they can't actually do that with their body or it doesn't work for their body or it's really uncomfortable in their body. And so I started being curious about watching my students and studying them and seeing what limitations they have. And then I started changing the way that I taught. Because if you're a yoga teacher and you're listening to this, dear yoga teacher, when we get new information, which I hope that you are, if you're continuing to study, even if it's in small bite-sized doses, don't just get your 200 hour and think you're done. No, no, no. This is the beginning. 200 hours is like, so you can continue to study for your whole life. So if you're continuing to study, my hope is that when you have new information and you realize that maybe something that you were doing wasn't skillful or accurate, that you then switch what you're doing. And that's what I started doing. So one simple example was in Tadasan, mountain pose, I was trained in my first teacher training that you stand with your feet together. And so that's how I taught it. And then, which by the way, never felt very grounded for my own body. I could do it. It was fine. It didn't cause pain or discomfort, but I never felt really solid and stable like a mountain when my feet were together. That's because I have a wide pelvis, but I did it. And so I stopped teaching Tadasan that way. And instead, I asked my students to come to the top of their mat and stand with their feet in a position that felt stable and solid for them. And then I showed a few variations. Their feet could be together, they could be slightly apart, they could be hip distance apart, et cetera, et cetera. And so keep in mind, I'd been teaching feet together for a couple of years now. And I had a student come up to me after class and say, I noticed that you changed the way that you taught about our feet in Tadasan. Why? And I explained to her, well, I've been studying some more anatomy. And I, what I've realized is that actually not everybody's bones can do that comfortably. Some people can do that really comfortably. Other people can't. So I'm just opening it up so that everybody can feel stable and solid in that shape, which I think is the point. But it's called mountain pose, right? So how do we feel stable and solid here? Grounded. And she said, oh, okay. And we moved on with life, right? So that's a bit of the background of how I started to learn about skeletal variations and started to drop these so-called alignment rules. Now, my hope is that if you are a teacher who is teaching yin yoga, that you have either watched or are about to, hopefully, this presentation with Paul Grilly. It is of the utmost importance, and I cannot stress this enough, that it will blow your mind if you haven't watched it yet. And it will change the way that you look not at your own, not just at your own body, but also at your students' body. Sometimes our students or teachers use these kind of shoulds, like the pose should look like this, or you should do it this way, because they haven't studied skeletal variations and they don't have a deeper understanding of how to make poses customized for each individual person instead of this blanket alignment cue or this rule air quotes about how the pose should look. Sometimes the reason that these 
things get said in yin yoga circles is because a teacher will come from a style of yoga where they were taught all of these so-called alignment rules and they just bring those into their yin practice. And so if that's you right now listening, don't feel called out, but accept this invitation to do better and to learn more. Accept this invitation to really deeply investigate do these rules even make sense? And again, resource, Paul Grilly's Anatomy for Yoga DVD. So if you are coming to yin from another style of yoga and you haven't perhaps studied yin yoga, so you're just teaching yin with all of these same kind of blanket alignment rules, that's a big problem. If you're a teacher who has come from another style of yoga, bringing in your alignment and rules as your suitcases with you, your baggage into a yin practice, and you have taken a yin training and they haven't talked about skeletal variations. They haven't talked about how to make poses adaptable and accessible for different bodies. That's a problem because that should have been included in your yin training. And if you are out there and you are a yin yoga teacher trainer and you do not include skeletal variations in your teacher training, why the heck not? I understand that sometimes teaching this can be awkward because you can't really get a room full of people that have such large ranges of motion and limitations and skeletal variations all in one place. So it can be a little daunting, but Paul's DVD is there as a resource. And that's how I do it in my training. When you come into my yin training, the only thing you need to buy is Paul's anatomy for yoga presentation. And that is the first assignment. Everybody has to watch it as homework, ideally even before they come to the first day. And then they have some reflection questions or some homework that they can do on what they experienced, what they thought, what they saw, any aha moments, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the very first thing that my teacher trainees go through before they even have a lesson with me. So if you are a teacher trainer and you of yin and you haven't done this or you haven't included skeletal variations, definitely rethink that. So there's some examples of why this idea of like my, this should be here, or my, that should be here, or the pose should look like this. Sometimes we bring our baggage, our aesthetic baggage, or our, what does the pose look like, or alignment rules that aren't actually rules because there is no way to say one blanket rule about everybody. It's impossible. So we bring that baggage into our yin practice, and then we start teaching our students with that baggage. So that's one reason why sometimes these things, these questions come out. The other reason is, and if you are a yoga student and you're listening to this, is that you're not actually studying yin yoga with a qualified yin yoga teacher. So if you're just scanning through YouTube and you just find a video and you're like, oh, okay, this video says yin in the title, but that teacher doesn't have any yin training. That's problematic because what they're doing is they're taking all of their baggage from their other styles of yoga and they're pushing all that luggage into their yin class. And again, problematic. So back to the case in point with the inspiration for today's episode. 
When I'm in shoelace, I can't get my head over my knees. So why this is problematic is because this poor student has fallen under the misconception that yin yoga is an aesthetic form of yoga. And it's not, it's a functional form of yoga. So let me break that down a little bit. Aesthetic, for those of you that are like, what does that mean? Aesthetic is how something looks. Function is how it works, right? So in yin yoga, for example, if we were going to do shoelace, let's just use that example, since that's the one that sparked today's episode. When you're a teacher or a student and you're going to do shoelace pose, you have to understand what is the intention of this pose? Why am I doing this? What's the point? It isn't to make pretty shapes with your body. The intention of shoelace is to feel some sensation in your hip butt IT band zone. So when you take the a focus away from what does this pose look like? I'm trying to make a pretty pose or I'm trying to match the version that I've seen in a book or I'm trying to copy the version I'm seeing on a DVD or I'm trying to practice on YouTube and I'm trying to copy what that teacher is doing, but you are not studying with a skilled teacher who can look at your individual body and go, oh, okay, for you, try this. That's a problem. That's why these alignment cues come in. But when you understand that the point of yin yoga isn't what the poses look like, but what they feel like, I'm gonna say that one more time, in yin yoga, what the pose looks like is irrelevant. We are worried about what does the pose feel like in your body? So in the case of shoelace, if you are doing some version of shoelace and there's a whole bunch of different versions based on bone structure, if you're doing some version of shoelace and you're feeling sensation of stretch in your hip, butt, IT band zone, and you're not feeling any pain, and you're in that kind of 50 to 60% zone. So you're not going into the fullest, deepest pose that you can do. Then you're successful because that is the point. The point of shoelace is to feel sensation in your hip and butt area. If you're feeling that and you're not feeling any pain and you're feeling an amount of sensation that's tolerable, that will allow you to be there for an extended period of time, anywhere from two and a half to five minutes, we'll say, not that you couldn't hold it longer, but just that's an average, then you're doing the pose right, regardless of where your head is or your knee is. I'm going to point out two more examples that come up with this often. Sleeping swan, it's called in yin, pigeon in hatha. There are teachers out there. And if this is you, dear teacher, please, for the love of my sanity and the health of your students' bodies, stop saying this. But there are teachers out there that will tell you that your front leg in pigeon or AKA swan pose should be at 90 degrees. So if you are doing that and you just felt called out, please stop doing that. You are, could potentially be injuring your students. Some people's bodies have the natural external rotation in their hip socket. Again, their bones. This is not a flexibility issue. This is a bone thing. Some people have the bones to bring their leg to 90 degrees and fold over it and have that be totally safe for their hip and their knee. For other people, 
If they keep trying to do that because they just think practice, practice, and all is coming. Or my teacher said, if I just keep doing enough yoga, eventually I'll be able to get my leg to 90 degrees here. And the goal of this pose is to get my leg to 90 degrees. So if that starts happening and that student keeps trying and their bone structure doesn't allow for that, you are injuring their body. You may be causing damage to their hip. There is a huge generation just before me of yoga teachers who have just a little bit more experience in practice, who have had the amount of hip replacements in older yoga teachers is ridiculous. And a lot of it is because they fell into these lies that they'd been sold about how everybody should be able to do this. If you just keep practicing one, one day, you too will have 90 degrees in your pigeon or swan pose. And that is bullshit. There are people who could do that from their very first yoga class. There are people who will never be able to do that, even though they've been practicing for decades and it depends on their bones. So that is another example that I often hear or witness students trying to pull their shin up so that it's parallel with the front of their mat, because they think that's the way to do this pose. It's not the way to do the pose doesn't matter what angle your shin's at. The point is, are you feeling sensation in your hip butt IT band zone in that pose? And are you not feeling any knee pain? And then well done. So if you can find sensation without pain in the intended area, and you can settle into the shape because you're doing a moderate amount, you can hang out there for time, then you're doing the pose right, regardless of what it looks like. One more example that I've had that I'll share with you. Not too long ago, one of the studios I teach at, the student came up to me before class and she said, hey, can you help me with something? I said, maybe, let's see. So she got into frog pose and she told me that she wasn't really feeling a stretch in her inner thighs anymore in frog pose, but she couldn't go any lower. She's like, what, what can I do? And I looked at her and I said, nothing because you're hitting your bones. So I said, what are you feeling here? You're not feeling any stretch in your inner thigh. Well, where in your body do you feel this? And she pointed, pointed directly to her outer hips in that pose. And she said, yeah, I just feel like this, like, like I'm like stuck or like pinch here. Yeah. Because you're hitting bony compression. One of your bones is hitting the other bone. So there is no further you're going to go in that pose. Yoga practice is not going to change our bones. It can release our soft tissues. It can, we can get more flexible with our tissues of our body, whether that's muscles or even fascia, right? We can affect the fascia of our body. We can affect the muscles of our body. We can affect the nervous system. That's a whole other topic, but we cannot change your bones. So this poor girl was coming into frog pose and doing frog pose often because she had the goal of wanting to be able to do the splits. And we could talk a lot about whether or not having a specific asana as a goal is even wise. I don't think so personally, because again, bone structure, regardless, her goal was to do the splits. And so she was doing this pose often and couldn't figure out why, even though she wasn't feeling any stretch in her inner legs. She couldn't get any lower to the ground. And when I told her, and I used my hand as an example, now you can't see this if you're listening to the podcast, but I often demonstrate by 
taking one hand and kind of making it into a curve shape. And then the other hand, I make a fist, which is to represent the head of the, the femur, the leg bone. And I showed her, well, in your body, what's happening is and the head of the femur is in your hip socket and you come to the ground, you're starting to get stuck here on your bone. And sometimes a visual is a good thing. So you can always check this out on YouTube if you are not understanding what I mean. So I said, but you're hitting your bones. So there is no further to go. And so she looked at me and she was like, so I'll never be able to do the splits this way. And I was like, exactly. And she was like, oh, huh. She wasn't sad. Her life wasn't over. She wasn't feeling like she wasn't a good yogi because she couldn't do the splits. If anything, she was relieved because she was like, oh, okay, well, scratch that idea then. So those are just a few of the many, many, many examples that I'll commonly see in yoga classes when people are trying to do a version of the pose that they see the teacher do or they see the person next to them do, and it's not necessarily wise for their particular body. And I realize that sometimes as teachers, listening to this kind of information can be a little bit daunting. Because if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, great. So everyone's got different bone structure. Well, how the hell am I supposed to teach this pose? And how the hell am I supposed to help people when I realize they can't do the version that I can comfortably do or that the neighbor can comfortably do? Well, this is when we talk about things like props and making yoga accessible. And if dear yoga teacher, if you have a yin training, and they didn't go over skeletal variations and ways to change the shapes, including props sometimes, to make these accessible for more bodies. If they didn't show you several versions, then it might be time to do another training. Unfortunately, in the yogaverse, and yin can definitely fall into this camp as well, there isn't a big focus on accessibility and customizing the poses to meet the individual's needs. And so sometimes as teachers, we can kind of look out at the group and see something coming up and be like, ah, I don't know what to do about this. This is something that I will say, even though I talked at the beginning of my, of this episode about my first teacher training program and how it had some definite disadvantages with this whole one size fits everybody thing. One thing the younger camp does really, really well is teach you how to use props. And so I have become a bit of a props queen, or some people call me a props ninja. I'll take either. So I have the ability to look at a student and see if they're uncomfortable and go over and offer them either a different version of the pose, or maybe putting a prop here or try this or try that. Does that feel more comfortable for you? Now it's always a question. It's always, does that feel more comfortable for you? Most of the time I got it figured out, but there's times where I'm wrong because I don't know what's going on in your body. If you're my student, I can make some informed guesses. I can be curious. I can offer you some solutions, but ultimately you're the one who has to tell me what you're feeling in your body. But if dear yoga teacher, you're sitting here right now thinking, shit, I'm always uncomfortable trying to figure out how to do versions of poses for people to meet their needs. And I don't know how to use the props and I don't, I haven't experienced that issue in my body. So how am I supposed to know? how to help them. Well, it comes from a few things. One, a willingness to learn. 
That's always good. You might not know now, but you can learn. A willingness to use props where needed. And a willingness to be curious and not feel like you need to have all the answers. So notice I said, when I go up to a student, I will ask them, hey, what if you try to block under your foot here? How does that feel? Is it more comfortable or less? If it's not, let's just take it out and forget this idea. But if you feel more comfortable here, let me know. So notice how I didn't just say, I'm going to put a block here because that's the answer for you. I asked them, are you feeling more comfortable this way? Does this allow you to feel more supported in a way that you can then take a deep breath and settle into this pose more and let gravity have you without feeling like you're straining or efforting to be here? So that's also important. So you want to be open and curious. You have to be okay with not having all the answers. And then if you really struggle with this, especially those of you teachers that come from quite naturally flexible bodies, it can be hard for you to then look out at a room of like the average bear and go, oh, these people can't do what I can do. Shit, now what? So might be time to invest in a training where accessibility is a focus. So if you're looking for one, I happen to have one. In my 60, at the time of this recording, it's a 60 plus hour training. It could be longer by the time you listen to this. One of the big things that we go over when we learn the shapes, the yin shapes is, I call it a bunch of ways that you can change the poses up to make them more accessible. And also other poses that can access the same area. If all of these variations that we're trying aren't working, you could also do this pose instead or this pose instead because not all poses are good for all bodies. That's just the way it goes. I will never be comfortable in shoulder stand on the floor without a bunch of props. It's just never gonna happen. And I'm cool with that, it's fine. Now that I know that, and now that I know that it's my bone structure limiting me, I can just do something else that to experience the same benefits of that pose, right? So for example, I can't do plow pose. Nope, you'd have to put a boatload of blankets underneath my shoulders for me to even feel remotely comfortable there. And I still wouldn't feel comfortable. So would I want to settle into plow or snail for five minutes? Hell no, that would be a small amount of torture for my body. But when I understand what is the intention of snail or plow, why am I doing this? Not what does this pose look like? And we just do it because it's in the sequence and we want everyone to look the same, but what is the point of this? What is the benefit? What am I putting this pose in the sequence for, then it's really easy to swap that out. So for example, a great alternative for me for a snail pose is to flip over and to do caterpillar because now I get that same rounding in the spine, but without all of the pressure on my neck. So that's just one example of how sometimes we can use props to help our students get more comfortable, but sometimes we just give them something else that's going to help the same area of the body but that's gonna be more available to them or more comfortable. So dear yoga teacher, if you're listening to this and you've had a lot of struggles trying to figure this out in your yoga classes, if you witness your students and you're like, oh, I don't know what to do here. And your first yin training didn't have a lot of focus on this. I would welcome you to check out my training. Of course, the link is always in the show notes. In fact, if you click the link, you can just get on the wait list. 
And that's how I recommend finding out about it is get on the wait list. Just literally look for the link that says get on the wait list, click it and add yourself to the wait list. Because when you do that, you'll be the first to know when registration opens for my training. You'll also get some other little bonuses like I do offer at the time of this recording, um, a discount for the first five that sign up and you only get that discount code if you're on the wait list. And I also send out these podcasts and videos and other things to help you with your yin teaching on the way to registration opening. So if what I've said has resonated with you and you feel like there's a hole in your knowledge, I would love for you to join me. Or if you're listening to this as a teacher and you've been teaching yin and you don't actually have any yin training, eek. I have a whole episode on that and why you need to have yin training in order to teach yin yoga. I will link that episode below as well. You really should check that one out because yin is pretty different. And so we need to treat it differently. We need to have a different skill set with yin than we do with other forms of yoga. And so it's helpful to learn that. And sometimes I get the question of, oh, but I've already taken a yin training. Should I take your training? I'll read this from one of my former students whose name is Janice. Here is her sort of testimonial, her feedback on my program. I have trained with Paul Grilly as well as Bernie Clark. So she's already got really awesome yin training under her belt. Nick's training stands out as unique. Her approach to yin is a truly quiet practice. Her focus is on developing teachers to appreciate space and quiet. Nick has studied TCM in depth, and one of the standout features of her training is the information about the meridians, the sinew channels, and the five elements, and it's balanced with deeply practical applications of both expansive posture, including the upper body, plus props, and modifications for all body structures. She offers a detailed manual with everything in one place, support videos, and book lists for continuing education well past the duration of the training. As a teacher in this training, we had plenty of time for live questions and answers, as well as access, access to Nick's experience as a teacher building a yoga business and a practice twice. This training is an incredible blend of yin, practical teacher stuff you need to know, and highly informed TCM approach. Nick's refreshing humor and style add to this truly one-of-a-kind training, and I would recommend this training, in fact, I already have, to teachers whether you already have another yin training or not, it is an investment well-made. Thank you, Janice. So I highlight that because sometimes I think we get this idea in yin that, oh, well, I've taken one 20 hour or 30 hour or 50 hour yin module. So I'm good. I'm done. No. So if you've taken some training before, you still feel like there's holes in your knowledge, then it might be time to take another training. You know, in the other styles of yoga, we have these silly systems of 200, 500, 300 hours. And yet somehow we think with yin that we just take like a little teeny module, add it on to what we're doing. And then that's it. Our work is done here. We dust off our hands and we move on with life. But if, if yin is a style of yoga that you really, really love and you love to teach and you feel passionate about, you will probably take several trainings over your years of teaching it. And so if mine sounds like a good fit, again, check the show notes. There's a wait list there. If mine's not a good fit, then try to seek out another training. If you're listening to this and you struggle with this whole alignment, accessibility, how do I modify things? Then try to find another training where that's a big focus of their training. 
And I can't necessarily say which ones those would be because I haven't taken them. Okay. So there's my alignment versus functional yoga. What is the difference between these silly alignment rules that may or may not make any sense for our students and actually doing a functional form of yoga? When we switch from teaching how the pose should look to how the pose should feel, it changes everything because it opens up the playing field to all kinds of versions of the shape that are, are adaptable for that individual student. I often joke with my students and I'll let this be the last little nugget that I share. And some of you will get the joke and some of you won't. That's okay. Those of you that are Trekkies will get it. But I often say to my students, yoga isn't one size fits all. I don't care what you look like in the shape. You don't need to look like your neighbor. You don't need to look like me. I want you to choose the version that works for you. You will not be assimilated. I am not the Borg. I'm not trying to assimilate you. We can all have our own beautiful individual versions of these shapes. And I love to see students that feel empowered enough to take props and make these versions their own and do what truly works for their body. So what started off as a should my head be over my knee and shoelace has gone down this rabbit hole. And I hope that you found something from it, whether you're a teacher who really struggles with how to help people or you've been using some of these alignment cues in yin, please stop. It's not the point of yin. Or if you're a student listening to this and you're like, oh, wait a minute, I don't have to look like everybody else in the practice, that this isn't a one size fits everybody. I hope that this was helpful. And until we talk again, bye for now. For those of you who stick around until the very end, thank you. If you love this podcast, I'd be grateful if you gave it a review. It really helps other yin yoga lovers find it. If you've already given a review, would you consider sharing a screenshot in your Instagram stories? And don't forget to tag me at NickDanuYoga or at Yin Yoga Podcast so I can share the love. Before I sign off, some gratitude. First, for you, the listener, for spending time with me today. Big gratitude and deep reverence for my teacher, Paul Grilly. Thank you to Fred Westra for the hang drunk samples. You can hear more of his music by clicking the link in the show notes. A big thank you to my beloved for mixing the intro and outro tracks. And until we meet again, may you be well. May you be content. May you be at peace. May you be free.